The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Realizing the Potential of Rapid-Acting Treatments for Depression. Key clinical evidence, practical considerations, and best practices for individualized patient-centered care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EUC 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. Boy, it's, it's an early morning. It's nice to see so many people up and out. And uh, I'm sure Disney is calling your name. So thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Josh Hamilton, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to our breakfast symposium and uh, joined today by my colleague, Dr. Ron Rico. So we are pleased to welcome you and uh, excited to talk to you about uh, the newer rapid acting treatments for depression. So we're going to be talking about some of the new research and some of the new releases and some of these agents. And our goals really are just that, to actually improve your understanding of some of the new ways that these new agents work and how some of the new rapid acting pharmacotherapies for depression may help benefit your patients. And we hope to talk to you a little bit about the research, about the eff efficacy and some of the safety profiles. In particular, we've gotten some questions already um, as you registered. That's something you're definitely interested in knowing. And we hope it makes you feel more confident at how to select and utilize these agents so that you've got what you need in terms of skills in your toolkit and knowledge to help you engage in those conversations and sharing some of these decision-making tasks with your patients. So, and we're going to kind of divide this into broadly two categories of new agents, but I think it's a really timely topic just considering what we're seeing with major depressive disorder in the U.S. And so we know the pandemic had a real definite effect, and you can kind of see just in the year 2020, we were dealing with 21 million adults who had their first major depressive episode just in that year. And if you really think about even a shorter snapshot period, just March and April of 2021, 85 million adults lived with elevated depression symptoms just in that 60-day period. So it is a real problem. We know this as, as psych people <laughs> in this room, but it is a leading cause of disability. So it is really important and I think really exciting when you think about all of the things we know with comorbidities and the fact that this really does affect medical illnesses and vice versa. Now, probably more than ever, we were really in need of some new research and some new options to treat this disorder. So that's what we're excited to share with you today. Uh, I know that postpartum depression is, is a big problem too. So Rona, yeah, let you talk about it. Absolutely. And this is just a major, major issue and does inform a large part of my clinical practice. Postpartum depression is one of the most common medical complications of pregnancy. We have symptoms that occur in over 13% of all live births in the United States. We're looking at just about half a million women per year. Um, and about 70% of women with a pre-existing mood disorder who discontinue antidepressants in pregnancy will experience a relapse of major depression. So it's a big, big issue. Untreated postpartum depression elevates risk for behaviors in mothers such as addictive behaviors, relationship difficulties, suicidality, um, neglectful parenting behaviors such as being less likely to talk to their babies, to use car seats, to bring children in for checkups. Uh, my initial nursing experience was as a neonatal intensive care nurse well before I got into psychiatry and we saw this a lot. Untreated PPD elevates the risk for um, issues in the children as well. So we're looking at risks of sleep disturbances, lower IQ, slower language development, behavioral problems, and psychiatric illness. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about some limitations with current standard of care antidepressant therapy. So we have these medications, and sadly, we know they're not always as effective as we want them to be. And we can broadly kind of divide these up into efficacy, onset of action, functioning and quality of life, and safety and tolerability. So the majority of patients just do not experience adequate response to these therapies. We're talking about barely two-thirds um, are, or about two-thirds are failing to achieve remission in the initial therapy, uh, almost 70% at the second-level therapy. Um, those patients who achieve remission still have residual depression symptoms. With current antidepressants, for those that do respond, we're looking at six to eight weeks to onset, and we all know this. Improvements in functioning and quality of life often lag behind symptomatic relief, and this is something we've all seen as practitioners you will see that the symptoms are getting better, you're doing your PHQ-9 or whatever form you're doing, patients are just telling you they're not feeling better. The symptoms are better, but their quality of life has not yet improved. And we have a lot of safety and tolerability issues. The current therapies are associated with a lot of significant side effects, sexual dysfunction, weight gain, nausea, anxiety, disruptions in sleep, all of these things that are going to worsen the underlying depression, and these can also interfere with adherence. So depression remains a critical unmet need, and again, we all know this. So we're really entering a new era in depression treatment, and we are going beyond those monoaminergic antidepressants. Those are the ones using the monoamines, so our serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. And we've kind of come up with some, what are our characteristics? If we were going to think, what is the ideal antidepressant? Well, here's some characteristics that I think we would broadly agree on. An effective short treatment course that can be easily discontinued without withdrawal symptoms. Take it when you need it. Wouldn't that be nice? And as I just said, available to take on an as-needed basis or as an adjunctive, like the monotherapy is not getting us there for a brief period. Let's add something on as needed. It's associated with quality of life and functioning improvements, not just numerical improvements on a scale, but a patient that comes to you and says, hey, I'm actually feeling better and my life is better. Um, more effective with those difficult to treat symptoms. So the anxiety, the cognitive issues, the suicidal ideation, those elements that we have such a tough time treating with our current antidepressants. We want something that's well tolerated with a favorable side effect profile. And we want rapid treatment response and remission. This is the dream, combined with dur durable, sustained effects that last beyond treatment completion. We want to give a medication for a short, constrained period of time and have effects that last. Wouldn't that be excellent? Wouldn't we love that? So let's think about our patient. Let's talk about Cyrus. Let me tell you a little bit about more about him so that you can get a good idea about whether your gut check was right about Cyrus. So this is a middle-aged man, 40 years old, who has the major depressive disorder. And he works as a landscape architect. He's an independent contractor. And I, as I told you, he's taken an SSRI at a moderate dose. He's on Aripiprazole 10. He's been doing that for about five years. But again, as we talked about before, his symptoms aren't adequately controlled and he seems to be decompensating. So he's back to having that depressed mood. He's got anergia, definitely have some, having some problems with uh, motivation and getting things done at work. And he feels like he's not thinking as clearly. So he's talking about that sense of brain fog. He's also comfort eating again at this point. He's gained about 15 pounds over a pretty short period of time, just over 12 months. 
And you can see his anxiety picking back up. How many patients of ours does this adequately represent? Quite a few. So the problem is he's also started to withdraw. He's not as engaged with friends and family, not doing social things. That's a big red flag for this normally social guy. So his PHQ-9 is 18, and he's actually scoring all of those items at two or three, except for bradykinesia slash hyperactivity. So um, that's good. And he's not high on the suicide question, so he's not indicating suicidal ideation. This is really a long course of treatment for Cyrus. He's received outpatient treatment about three to four times since he was initially diagnosed as a teenager. So his diagnosis was made at age 17. He's taken a lot of different agents. How many of our patients have? So a lot of different medication trials, all of which had been adequate for Cyrus. And what happens is in the past, either they don't work or they cause him side effects, or he's directed because he's gone into remission for a short period of time to stop taking his medication. So it's a pretty varied history for Cyrus. So we want to make sure you understand, we understand your patients as well. So we're going to talk about Cyrus as kind of our model MDD patient. And Ron, I'll let you talk a little bit more about Veronica. So let's go back and talk a little bit about Veronica. Veronica, this is our 26-year-old woman. She gave birth to her first child three weeks ago. She's a software engineer, so she's got a great job. She's currently on maternity leave. She lives with her mother, and her mother helps with the baby in the evenings when, um, when the mother returns home from work. Her depression symptoms began three to four days after giving birth. Low mood, she's been having crying spells, she's having difficulty sleeping, she's having significant anxiety about her baby's health. She's just worried all the time, is my baby healthy? She's worrying about going back to work and putting her child in daycare when her maternity leave ends. So she's having those ruminations, right? She's worry, worry, everything's a worry, and we know this. She feels like she's having difficulty bonding with her baby, especially first baby. She's worried all the time. She doesn't feel like she's bonding. She doesn't know what bonding should be. She hasn't been through this before. And she's having intermittent thoughts that her family would be better off without her. So she's not having full-on suicidal ideations. She's not having plans. She's just starting to have those vague thoughts. Maybe things would be better if I wasn't around. Um, she has an Edinburgh postnatal depression score, so EPDS score of 25, which we might not all be using that scale on a regular basis. That does indicate severe depression. She's not currently taking any medications. She was taking sertraline prior to pregnancy, but she stopped when she became pregnant. She made a decision she wanted to, what she thought to be a responsible mother, so she stopped taking her sertraline. She began drinking alcohol three to four nights a week, one to two drinks per occasion, about a week after giving birth in an attempt to calm her nerves to make it easier to fall asleep. So ding, 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 red flag. She's self-treating these symptoms with not necessarily the best, well, definitely not the best choice for those indications. Her history, she had a major depressive episode at age 22 and another at age 25. So we're seeing that recurrent episode we see with unipolar depression. She's had partial responses to sertraline. She still had some residual depressive symptoms from that last episode at age 25 while taking the sertraline in the months before she became pregnant. So she was still a bit depressed. Sertraline was helping a little bit. She stopped taking it, and now she's having a very severe depressive episode. So why don't we keep these two cases in mind sort of as we dive into some of these new ideas about treatment. So I'm going to begin by asking you to just keep Cyrus in mind as we kind of talk about um, these medicines and then keep Veronica in mind as we start to talk about some of the newer GABA options here as well. So we're going to kind of divide this content into two big buckets. We're going to talk about the NMDA receptor antagonists and those are going to be by and large your esketamine nasal spray which some of you may be using already. It's been approved and out a little bit longer. That's one of those new 
uh, adjunct therapies that, that we're often seeing um, used. And it's the one that's available, again, as a nasal spray. And it's indicated for treatment-resistant depression in adults. It's also indicated for depressive symptoms in adults with MDD and acute suicidal ideation or acute suicidal behavior. And then probably the newer agent to some of you, and it's a newer approval, is the dextromethorphan bupropion extended release tablet. And it's indicated for the treatment of major depressive disorder in adults as well. And then Roan's going to talk to you about the neuroactive steroid GABA-A receptor positive modulators. That's a mouthful. <laughs> but those include brexanolone, which has been out for a while for IV infusion, and really was used for postpartum depression in patients who are 15 or older with or without a standard of care oral antidepressant. And then the newer approval, which many of you are probably aware of, which is Zoranolone, available as a capsule. And it's indicated for postpartum treatment um, for depression in adults with or without a standard of care oral antidepressant. So I'm going to begin by talking a little bit more about glutamate, and then we'll kind of switch over to the GABAergic side of the house as well. So it's it's been a while it had been for me since i studied so 28 years is how long ago i was in school and we didn't pay a lot of attention to the glutamatergic system at that time and many of us may need a little refresher so let me give you a little primer on neuroanatomy and neurochemistry of the glutamatergic system just in terms of where those neurons live and where they emanate from and where they project so that's really what this particular graphic shows you is there are a lot of glutamatergic interconnections that sort of move through major centers of the brain so the red lines on this diagram really show you where some of these neurons come come from where they originate and where they project in the prefrontal cortex in the hippocampus in particular and in the amygdala all of those big trigger zones for anxiety and we know now mood certainly lives there as well so this takes us a little farther away from what we would classically consider the limbic system and some of the raffine nuclei that we've been so on with the monoaminergic system for a period of time what we have found and what research seems to bear out when we think about major depressive disorder and glutamate in particular is we see a significant reduction in the amount of glutamate in these areas that we've elucidated here on the slide. So we're not seeing a lot of glutamate in the dorsolateral, the dorsomedial, and the dorsoanterolateral prefrontal. We also see issues with the anterior cortex and the medial frontal. So there's a, a real deficit in transmission of glutamate in those areas. Unfortunately, this is that teeter-totter theory because on the other side, when you look at glutamate levels in the back of the brain in the occipital cortex, we've got a lot more glutamate in that area than we would expect or that we would want. And it seems to be that balance that's important. Over time, when glutamatergic tone changes or is aberrant, we also see structural changes. And it is similar in that way when we think about neurochemistry and, and subtle neuroanatomical changes that happen. So we see these same brain regions in depressed sub subjects also changing size and volume. And that seems to bear out some of the theory with the glutamatergic uh, underpinning for depression. When a patient undergoes a period of prolonged stress or high stress, especially when we see that HPA axis that's triggered and we see a lot of glucocorticoid activity in the system, we see some pretty peculiar abnormalities in the glutamate synapses and in neurotransmission within the glutamatergic system. So when you have a patient who is stressed and you've got a lot of glucocorticoid expression in the system, there is a lot more presynaptic glutamate and that kind of triggers for me that whole idea about excitotoxicity in the system. And that's sort of how I initially conceived that these agents must work. But it goes beyond that. And the, the mechanism of action of some of these agents is actually downstream. And I think it's important to start to think about the, the 
depolarization wave that actually causes changes either downstream or within the cell itself. And so what happens in major depressive disorder is you do see changes in postsynaptic ionotropic glutamate and AMPA receptors. And that seems to both cause the disease and that interestingly enough is where some of these newer treatments for the glutamatergic theory of depression seem to work. That's their mechanism of action. So you, we do see problems with clearing of glutamate from the synaptic cleft, certainly, and that's particularly a function of the glial glutamate membrane transporter system. So that system is not working efficiently. We also see changes in inherent glutamate metabolism. And the problem there is this is one of those neurotransmitters that is recycled and there's a, an actual a recycling pathway, kind of like with dopamine. So, and that again has to do with glial cell function and glial cell density in those areas. So when you think about these two newer medications that work with the glutamatergic system, what you're really looking at is a way to antagonize the system. So both asketamine and the dextromethorphan uh, uh, bupropion combination actually work in this way. They antagonize the system and what happens as a result of that is a pretty rapid effect. And what you see is neuroplasticity, synaptic plasticity, improvements in cognition, particularly learning and memory. And over time, there has been a demonstrated neuroprotective effect with this particular system. So you're looking at medications that actually antagonize the system and cause some downstream effects, particularly when we talk about asketamine, with the function and expression of the AMPA receptor. So when this medication was first studied, and a lot of the early trials honestly were done with, with ketamine infusions. Now the approved medication is a nasal spray that's actually administered in the office. What you see is when you've got a depressed patient and this glutamatergic dysregulation that's going on, if you can antagonize the NMDA receptor, which is glutamine's parking space, remember that, you've got a lot of AMPA receptor activity as well. So you actually see the blockade of the NMDA receptor leading to AMPA expression or AMPA activation. That causes a downstream release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which you know is one of those growth and maintenance chemicals of the entire nervous system. So that's a very positive effect. And we also see a positive activation of the kinases in that area. So really, the expression of BDNF and that downstream signaling that comes from improved connectivity and plasticity in the system is really how we think esketamine works. And it does that pretty rapidly by causing rapid neurogenesis and mediation of synaptic excitability and plasticity in the system. So when you're thinking about where and how esketamine works, I think this is a really helpful diagram. The newer approval here, and, and one of these medications in our combination therapy, the dextromethorphan and bupropion combination, of course the bupropion isn't new to any one of us, and honestly neither is dextromethorphan. We've all taken it at one point or another as a cough suppressant. So neither one of these medications is a new molecule, but binding them together and, and delivering them in combination is a new idea. So if you're kind of thinking about how this works, the active ingredient, believe it or not, in this combination is the dextromethorphan. So in this case, what you're trying to do is basically twofold. You have another antagonist being introduced into the system. That's what the dextromethorphan does. It actually interacts with the ionotropic glutamate receptor, and it's also got that sigma enigma, kind of like with Zoloft and Luvox. So it does interact and it, it agonizes the sigma-1 receptor. So it is important to kind of think about the ionotropic glutamate receptor and the sigma receptor. Those are being pressed on, they're being agonized. And then of course we're blocking the NMDA receptor. So that is a direct antagonist at those areas. So we see a multimodal action with the dextromethorphan. 
And what's happening again here is we're trying to modify glutamatergic transmission. That is really the primary way that this medication works. The other issue is that if we can get sigma-1 ironed out, we do see that we've got improved glutamate signaling and improved monoamine signaling in those areas as well. And that can be helpful when you think about the monoamines because bupropion does have a therapeutic effect. It's minor. You're really looking at its ability to inhibit dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake, but it's actually being introduced in this way to get in the way of metabolism of dextromethorphan. So what it's doing is blocking the highway, if you want to think about it that way, that dextromethorphan travels in the liver. So we want to try to get the dextromethorphan level up as high as possible. And one of the ways to do that is to interfere with its metabolism. So it's actually bupropion doing that function to allow dextromethorphan to reach its therapeutic level. Um, right. Roan, I'll hand it over to you to talk about GABA a little bit. Absolutely. And thank you, Josh. That was really, really, I just, I love hearing him teach things. I always learn more when I listen to Josh teach something. It'll take something that's that complex slide and really put it in language that I understand. So thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so we're going to now be talking about GABA in the neurobiology of depression. So switching gears, leaving that glutamine and glutamate and NMDA behind, now we're moving into the GABA realm, okay? So GABA system is the major inhibitory signaling pathway of the brain and the central nervous system. This is our down-regulating uh, neurotransmitter. We have some direct evidence of GABA's role in the development of depression. We're talking about things like decreased concentrations of GABA in the brains of depressed patients, so we just see less of it, decreased expression of GABA synthesizing enzymes, altered expression of GABA-A receptor subunits, which we'll be talking about, reduced number of GABAergic interneurons, so all the GABA system just seems decreased in some forms of depression, and we're getting polymorphisms in genes encoding for GABA-A receptor units, again indicating maybe there's some folks that are just susceptible to depression uh, that arises from the GABAergic system. Now we have some indirect links as well. We have GABA's role in the regulation of the default mode network, okay? And the default mode network is that resting and relaxing state in our brain. And this is where we see some of those ruminations in depressed patients. We see GABA's role in the regulation of the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Again, sometimes that axis is seen to be dysregulated in depressed patients, so that's an indirect evidence right there. And antidepressant effects of neuroactive steroids such as allopregnanolone. Basically, we see if we give a neuroactive steroid that works on the GABA system, that we see some beneficial effects. So that's another indirect link between GABA and depression. So here's another fancy picture. I'll try to do as good a job as Josh did in breaking this down. What is the GABAergic deficit hypothesis, a major depressive disorder, and HPA access hyperactivation? Okay, so basically what we're looking at here is that the GABAergic deficits in the hippocampus and the frontal cortex lead to local hyperexcitability. So this is where we need to kind of get our mind turned around here. GABA is inhibitory, right? So if we're not getting enough GABA effect, we're gonna to get too much excitation. So those deficits, we could be looking at the loss of paraparvalbumin, positive interneurons, reduced GABAergic synaptic inhibition, reduced maturation survival of adult-born granular cells. So basically, just a long way of saying, we see some biochemical and physiological changes in the brain that are indicative of a change in the GABAergic system. This activates the HPA access. Um, this leads to excess release of that cortical 
steroid or the corticotropin releasing hormone from the PVN leading to increase of the ACTH from the anterior pituitary which promotes release of glucocorticoids okay so the downstream effect of this is you're getting more of those stress hormones that's the bottom line we're looking at increased stressed hormones that are arising through this system now we have neuroactive steroids that bind to the GABA-A receptor. Neuroactive steroids are derivatives of cholesterol or steroidal precursor. It's made in the gonads, it's made in the adrenal glands, it's made in the placenta, and it's very much made in the brain and glial cells. Endogenous neuroactive steroids, including allopregnanolone, are rapid and potent allosteric modulators of the GABA-A synaptic and extrasynaptic receptor function. So we have two forms of the GABA-A receptor. We have synaptic, or what you'll see intrasynaptic or presynaptic, uh, actually postsynaptic to correct myself, and then we have extrasynaptic. Now, the benzodiazepines operate solely on that synaptic receptor. The neuroactive steroids operate on both the synaptic and the extrasynaptic receptor, so they cover more bases. Uh, neuroactive steroids play a critical role in the regulation of the HPA access during non-stress and acute and chronic stress conditions through their modulation of GABA signaling. So that's tying it back to that previous slide where we're seeing this excitation in the HPA access and those GABAergic receptors are being activated by neuroactive steroids. Those steroids are modulating that stress response. So what is the role of allopregnanolone in the pathophysiology specifically of postpartum depression? So progesterone and allopregnanolone levels increase during pregnancy and they peak at the third trimester. After giving birth, that allopregnanolone level falls rapidly to the pre-pregnancy levels. And while extrasynaptic GABA-A receptors that were lost during pregnancy come back, causing neurosteroid withdrawal. And we know this from our receptor mechanics in other receptors. So the level is dropping, but now we're getting more receptors, and those receptors are hungry, so we have a withdrawal effect. We have a deficit. These imbalances lead to increased neuronal excitability. So we're under treating our GABA, so we're excitability now. So we have neuronal neurosteroid sensitivity. These all trigger those postpartum depression systems, symptoms. Administering neurosteroid replacement therapy during the postpartum period rapidly replenishes those allopregnanolone levels to third trimester levels, resulting in rapid and effective relief of PPD symptoms. And it really is that straightforward. I have the tongue twisters here, but I actually have the pretty straightforward mechanism. That, those receptors, those levels dropped, the receptors increased, they're hungry for that neurosteroid. We give neurosteroid, we put it back to that third trimester level, postpartum depression gets better. It really is that straightforward. So brexanolone is the FDA-approved analog of allopregnanolone that is administered via IV infusion over 60 hours for the treatment of postpartum depression. We'll talk about more about this in a little bit. Now, zoranolone is the newly approved medication. It just got approved on August 4th of this year. It is an orally administered synthetic neuroactive steroid. So it's not an analog of allopregnanolone like brexanolone is, but it is, an analog, it is a uh, synthetic form of it, and it activates the same receptors. It's not identical in structure to allopregnanolone, um, but it also, again, has been approved for the treatment of postpartum depression. 
The approval from the FDA on August 4th is for postpartum depression specifically, and you can see the little chart of those levels there. So we will go over just the research, just to give you a high level to show you the, the clinical trials and some of the things that showed us that these could be approved and they do they are helpful. So when you think about esketamine, again, it's been out a little bit longer, but there have been about three pretty good quality months long placebo controlled trials that are summarized here in the chart for you. Uh, there's been one longer maintenance trial with esketamine plus any newly started oral antidepressant in patients with treatment resistant depression. So one of those three trials actually showed a statistically significant effect compared to placebo, and that was enough to get esketamine approved. I think what blew our hair back, and in terms of the researchers, it certainly impressed them, was how quickly this, uh, this medication onset happened and how potent the effect could be, particularly with suicidality. So I'll show you some of those data here in just a moment. But really, not only did the depression symptoms remit quickly, they actually, for those who continue treatment, plus an oral de uh, antidepressant, had a longer time to relapse of their depression symptoms. So it seems like the effect was more durable when we added esketamine in that four week uh, sort of algorithm as well. There was a meta-analysis that was done at the end and it found that augmenting a primary antidepressant with esketamine actually resulted in a 50% response rate, which is excellent, and a 36% remission rate for treatment-resistant pressure. So for those of us who have been struggling to get patients into remission, those are pretty good data. I thought it was interesting and I wanted to make sure we brought to you the esketamine trials for patients who had active suicidal ideation with intent. And so this was... Uh, ideation as measured with the ma with the uh, the madras score so what you were looking at here again was with standard of care or treatment as usual with an oral antidepressant and adding esketamine in your suicidal patient we did see statistically significant or superior improvement in the madras versus placebo plus an oral antidepressant at 24 hours so that rapid onset is really crucial particularly when you're talking about a patient who is actively suicidal and esketamine has been found to be helpful in that regard. If you turn to our other GABAergic here uh, and, and look at our combination agent of dextromethorphan and bupropion, again, rapid acting seems to be our buzzword at this point. So it is a rapid acting FDA approved NMDA receptor antagonist. I told you it agonizes the Sigma-1 receptor and it also supports monoamine reuptake inhibition for the treatment of MDD. So if this is new to you, there are just a couple ways that, that I need to underscore how it works and why it works and how to use it. So first of all, be careful with your initial titration. The dose is a combination of 45 milligrams of dextromethorphan plus 105 milligrams of bupropion, which is a really interesting dose of Welbutrin. There's something special about those ratios and it's important to begin with just one tablet a day for at least three days and the patient takes that in the morning. If things are going well in day four, then you actually switch to BID dosing. So it's one tablet in the morning and one tablet mid-afternoon or early evening. You have to separate those doses by at least eight hours. And I've seen this personally. I've had a patient who misinterpreted the instructions and took both, med both of the pills right away in the morning. And what she came back to me and best described was basically she felt like she was on a club drug. She was rolling almost like she had taken ecstasy. <laughs> so you have to be careful once she separated her doses that that did resolve. So it is important to pay some attention to that. No more than two doses in a, in a single 24 hour period. It is important. Think about the two medicines you're giving here. 
check blood pressure, make sure that you don't have a, a history of epilepsy or seizures of any kind. Make sure you've not got a patient towing around the, the edges of hypomania. We, we could see switching with this medication. And make sure you're not double covering. If you've got a patient who's already taking any form of bupropion, you mindful of that and perhaps revisit your dose before you initiate additional medication. Pay some attention. Patients do get dizzy. Sometimes they report headache. They have loose stool occasionally. Some patients actually get tired from this medication combination. There are some anticholinergic side effects. I have not seen a lot about sexual dysfunction, but it did appear in some of the literature in the clinical trials, so we included it for you here. And it can increase sweating in some patients. Those are minor side effects, so they appear lower down on the list. And with everything that includes bupropion, we do want to monitor for seizures and we want to make sure that we're always monitoring for the evolution of suicidal thinking, so that is important. The studies for this particular medication, there were essentially four of them. And so what we've given you here on one slide are the results of Gemini, Ascend, Comet, and Evolve. And they all sort of looked at different angles when we looked at a combination of dextromethorphan and bupropion. So you can basically see not only the rapid onset that was, that was shown here, we also did see some robust and sustained effects even at 12 months. And that looked at the, the Comet trial in particular. And we did see improvement or reduction in suicidal ideation in the COMET trial with the use of this particular combination product. And of course, the more important thing when we think about our work in comorbidity, the EVOLVE trial was particularly important because it showed that this particular combination can also positively affect anxiety pathology and anxiety symptoms. So that was a secondary analysis or a secondary effect, but it was pretty important. So keep, keep your eye on that one. Um, Ron, I'll let you talk about our GABAergics and some of the research. Alrighty, so we're going to start with brexanolone. Now, remember, brexanolone is that IV-infused um, analog of allopregnanolone. So this is FDA-approved. It is a formulation of allopregnanolone, a positive allosteric GABA-A receptor modulator for the treatment of postpartum depression in patients aged 15 and older. Now, this is administered in an inpatient setting. It is a continuous IV infusion over 60 hours. I won't read you the hour by hour. I don't think that's high value right now, but you certainly have access to all this information. Um, you have to have a healthcare provider on site. Again, this is inpatient. They require continuous um, monitoring and pulse oximetry during the 60 hour infusion and 12 hours afterwards. And they might need some intervention for excessive sedation. So the most common adverse effects really are headache, dizziness, sedation and somnolence, dry mouth, loss of consciousness, and flushing or hot flash. Loss of consciousness kind of slipped in there, but yes, this is a sedating medication. These patients do need to be monitored. Um, in terms of pregnancy, brexanolone may cause fetal harm. You don't want to be giving this to patients who are pregnant. Obviously, in general, you're usually giving this to a patient who has just recently given birth. So it's not an issue, but it has to be in there under, you know, if it's ever considered for off-label or whatever, you cannot give this to a pregnant patient. You have to make sure your patient is not pregnant because we do see embryonic toxicity with this. It can cause fetal harm. Um, lactation. So... There's the data does not show any significant risk, and we'll be discussing this with Ceranolone as well, where I think it's even more important. Um, we don't see a big risk at this point. We don't see a signal for adverse reactions in infants that are breastfed from exposure to brexanolone. 
you you just always got to balance it. And again, we'll talk more about this when we talk about Zoranolone as well. It's that risk benefit between any potential harms of breastfeeding and the harms of not breastfeeding if you have a mother who is able and willing. Um, there is a black box warning on this medication. It is excessive sedation and sudden loss of consciousness. It is only available inpatient and you have to be enrolled in the REMS program. It does have a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program that is associated with Brexanolone. You have to be involved in that in order to give this medication. Again, this is going to be in an inpatient setting. So let's look at some of the research. So the brexanolone in, in patients with postpartum depression, we had, this was given to women who are less than six months postpartum with postpartum depression and who were willing to temporarily stop breastfeeding. So that's an important point. During these studies, there was no breastfeeding. We have three placebo-controlled trials. They all showed a rapid antidepressant effect within 24 hours um, for many patients. And we saw a 65% reduction in depressive symptoms at that 60-hour mark. Responses at 24 hours, you had, we had a very strong response rate versus placebo, and we had a very strong remission rate versus placebo in here as well. So it proved to be immediately very, very effective. Now switching gears to Zoranolone. Zoranolone is probably the one that you're going to really be dealing with more. This is the recently approved oral medication. So this is a neuroactive steroid. It is a GABA-A receptor positive modulator for the treatment of postpartum depression in adults. It is the first oral antidepressant to receive approval for the indication of postpartum depression. So this is a very exciting realm that we're entering in now where postpartum depression is getting the direct intention that it really deserves. A large part of my clinical practice is treating um, postpartum women with dual diagnosis and psychiatric diagnosis, seeing pregnant and parenting women. So this is a big part of what I see every day. So what is the dosage? The recommended dosage is 50 milligrams orally once daily in the evening for 14 days. You are only giving this for 14 days at a time. You're giving a set dose in the evening. You want to administer this with fat-containing foods. The studies clearly showed a difference in administration. So just like all you that are prescribing lorazodone and you have to give that talk and tell them you gotta eat the food, this isn't a suggestion, this isn't a cracker, this is a meal. Likewise, the, um, the prescribing insert actually says a meal of 400 to 1,000 calories and it has to contain fat. Um, the dosage may be reduced to 40 milligrams once daily if you see a lot of CNS depressant effects. So if they take it once or twice and it's really causing some CNS depression, so it's really sedating, you can drop that dose down. It can be used alone or as an adjunct to the existing oral antidepressant therapy, so you can use this as an add-on. Um, again, pregnancy may cause fetal harm. You want to advise any pregnant patients of the potential risk to the infant. So if this is a patient that is still in that postpartum period, they're still depressed, but there's a chance of them becoming pregnant. You have to warn them about this. Um, lactation. Now, in clinical trials, patients were prohibited from breastfeeding, just like we talked about with, um, with our last drug, with Brexanolone. Now, the studies show, and we'll go into more detail on another slide, very, very low levels in breast milk. The developmental health benefits of breastfeeding do have to be outweighed by any potential risk of Zoranolone. We have a statement from Health and Human Services that we'll come up to in a moment that'll help clarify that a little bit. 
And what are our most common adverse effects? Just like brexanolone, somnolence, dizziness, diarrhea, fatigue, nasopharyngitis, and urinary tract infection. So your main side effects we're looking at are again sedation. This again has a black box warning. Zoranolone causes driving impairment specifically driving impairment due to CNS depressant effects, you want to advise patients not to drive or engage in heavy machinery, et cetera, until at least 12 hours after administration. They tested this in the studies. It's in the prescribing information. They gave it to them the night before. They had them do a driving simulator, not on the road, but on a computer. And there was significant impairment of driving ability that next morning. So again, just like the meal, we have to educate our patients. I'm not just telling you this, that it might make you sleepy. I'm telling you this may impair your ability to drive in a dangerous manner, don't drive the next day. Give it at least 12 hours. We had studies. We had Robin and Skylark. This is Zoranolone in patients with postpartum depression. I'm just going to get to the high point. We are looking at a response rate in over half of the patients versus 42% of the placebo patients. A remission rate, remitting depression, 27% of Zoranolone patients versus 70% in the placebo. This was in Skylark. This is in that less than or equal to 12-month postpartum treated, a postpartum period, and this is a two-week trial. So very, very good, rapid, rapid effects. That's the highlight of this slide. So landscape program, this was looking at things. Short answer, it did not receive approval for major depressive disorder. From what I understand, they saw some very good results, as you saw here. FDA did not consider it sufficient, so they will be doing this. They will be going back to look at it. So at this time, the important point, approved for postpartum depression, not yet approved for major depressive disorder. That's your takeaway from this slide. And here we can just kind of riff back and forth on how did they do? Remember those categories we talked about in the very beginning? Rapid treatment response, durable effect, effective short treatment that can be easily discontinued, no withdrawal. So Josh, esketamine, dextromethorphan, bupropion, how did they measure up on yours? Well, you can see it on the slide, so we won't read to the folks. I will say this, I want to go back because I think I may have inadvertently given short shrift to esketamine. How many of you are, are working with esketamine currently? Nasal spray particularly. Um, some of you aren't, so I just want to underscore two things, and some of this comes across in the summary data. One, there is a RIMS program for esketamine nasal spray. It requires at least two hours of monitoring in office because there is a risk for some side effects that it do include dissociation. So if you are going to be thinking about using esketamine, you would have to participate in and comply with the RIMS program. So, and that, that's because it does work fast. So both of these agents are rapid acting. They both have good data behind them. Um, and there are some burst dosing strategies as well. So they, they stack up pretty well, Roan, in, in terms of these criteria. You know, I would say overall, my two do fairly well as well. Again, brexanolone is kind of standout. That is not an as needed. It's not an adjunctive. It's pretty much given once in the inpatient setting. Um, Zoranolone, though, we see rapid treatment response. We see sustained effects. So in some of the later studies, we're looking at some sustained effects way out from that initial two weeks. Um, is it a short treatment? Yes, mine by definition for zoranolone, two weeks and you're done. Do you need a boost later on? Make sure you're really checking for the possibility of pregnancy. And remember, it's postpartum depression, so that's that one-year cutoff. After that, you're really not in the postpartum area anymore. You're getting into more major depressive disorder, and we are not indicated for that. So, yeah, I'd say we stack up pretty well. And now looking at kind of those, those side effect profiles. How do you think about that? 
Well, for the most part, these are well tolerated. Obviously, you're dealing with that dissociation and the sedation effects, especially with some of our GABAergics. Um, however, patients are talking about significant improvements and rapid improvements in quality of life and functioning. So by all measures, we did see significant functional improvement for both of your, uh, both of our glutamatergics, our NMDA receptor antagonists. And we are seeing good data in terms of how quickly they can help with treatment-resistant depression. So uh, that's, that's good. And then we do have the one positive effect with uh, anxiety uh, reduction. So they, they do pretty well on these criteria as well. How about yours? Yeah, I would agree. Again, um, you know, brexanolone is generally very well tolerated. It's given in the inpatient setting. It has some pretty significant potential side effects in terms of sedation, but those patients are being monitored. We don't really know the quality of life impacts of that medication yet. Um, it is effective with the moderate and severe PPD, anxiety, and insomnia. With Zoranolone, yes, we do have some, we have side effects with that. We didn't see weight gain or sexual side effects. Um, we saw actually improvement in functional characteristics as well. So we did get to that quality of life piece. It's not just the symptoms on the scale. It's actually patient reported quality of life that we saw improvement with with that. And we did see significant benefit in that moderate to severe postpartum depression that we weren't treating very well currently. And we saw some benefit in anxiety. We saw some benefit in insomnia as well. I think that's one of the nicest things is we're not seeing some of the, the more common issues. So when patients are concerned about starting new medications, of course, they're concerned about weight gain and they're concerned about sexual side effects in many instances. So we're not seeing that across the board for many of these. So in terms of choosing who may be the most appropriate patients, you and I probably can underscore some information here. But I think what comes out in the data, particularly with some of these rapid acting agents is when they are acutely suicidal, we've got some good data that shows within a short period of time, particularly with the glutamatergics. Yeah. We've got good data that shows that acute suicidal ideation can be rapidly reduced. And then certainly the added considerations when a patient is decompensating and when they've got other things going on, especially when their decompensation affects other people, uh, when you think about postpartum depression yeah. in particular, that is an important consideration if you are going to uh, maybe evaluate whether or not you want to add one of these newer agents. I think that's important. And a lot of good data coming out about cognitive issues and cognitive dysfunction, executive functioning, and positive effects, especially when a patient is at risk for poor work performance. Another significant stressor for those folks. What else do you think about when you're thinking of the patient profile here? Well, and I agree with all of that, absolutely. And again, we're dealing when I'm discussing Zoranolone and Brexanolone, that we're dealing with that postpartum depression, which is a unique identified subtype of depression. So this isn't treatment-resistant depression. This is a unique form of depression. Now we have a treatment that we know is directly treating that condition. And again, you know, patients might prefer this. This is a short course. This is something where they are like, well, I don't want to be on a long-term medication. I don't want it to impact my ability to interact with my child or breastfeeding. With Zoranolone specifically, you're selling a two-week course to remit those symptoms. And then maybe you'll have that add-on antidepressant as well. So yeah, I think, I think those patients in those unique circumstances, severe, treatment-resistant, suicidal for some of the glutaminergic, postpartum depression for the neuroactive steroids, we really have some good options for them now. I think the other piece of this is patient preference and convenience. So we added it to the slide. For those who really desperately want to avoid the hospital and we need a change rapidly within 24 to 48 hours, several of these are really good options in those circumstances. 
So when you are considering how to use these medications, when you've got a patient who may be appropriate, here's the age-old question, whether, whether to augment or whether to switch. So we've sort of given you the, the ideas that have been promulgated for many, many years about how and when you may want to add medications versus switching. And I think it's important to consider when someone isn't tolerating a medication well or the side effects have been severe, when that risk-benefit analysis is completely lopsided, it may be a good idea to switch versus augment. And when you're thinking about the patient preference, whether or not they are medication averse and pill burden, and all of that goes into making this determination. A lot of these, at least a couple of these are good add-ons. So they are good augmentation strategies. And in fact, some of the best data came from augmentation with standard of care or treatment as usual with an orally maintained antidepressant and then to layer in another therapy. Uh, monotherapy or the dextromethorphan bupropion combo can be very effective. So you can think about these criteria and then of course, always individualize to the patient. What comes to mind for you, augment versus switch? Well, and I think when we're discussing the neuroactive steroids especially, I think augmentation is probably going to be one of our better options. These are rapid acting. They can be added to. Now, they're not necessarily curative. So you might, depression is a chronic illness. We know this. So that rapid onset is excellent. And we do have some good long-term data coming out, but it might not be sufficient. And in that case, you can add it to one of our standard antidepressants. In general, zoranolone plays very nicely with our current antidepressants. We're not really looking at risks of serotonin syndrome, et cetera. It's metabolized by CYP3A4, so you just watch for those interactions. But it's generally a good agent to consider for that rapid onset, and then maybe keeping your patient on a maintenance medication if you as a professional decide that's necessary. I think the other consideration and something that is kind of new, and it's actually shown up in the Q&A, we've actually done a pretty good job of covering some <laughs> of these questions as they've come in. Um, really thinking about not wanting to double cover. So bupropion and adding more bupropion inadvertently, that's one thing I mentioned before. The other is that particular combination, they're not quite sure how or why yet, but we do see that there are increases in some of the monoamines and so not just dopamine and norepinephrine. So we do see serotonin increasing as well with a couple of these glutamatergic. So do be careful and monitor for serotonin syndrome. And if you're adding something like the dextromethorphan bupropion combination to an SSRI, you might wanna consider tapering back the dose of the SSRI just a little bit as well. Absolutely. So I promised I would talk about this. I want to give this a couple of minutes. So breastfeeding when giving zoranolone, obviously going to be a huge question because we're in the immediate postpartum stage, right? So they did a steady state milk study. It was conducted in 14 healthy lactating women treated with an oral administration of 30 milligrams of zoranolone for five days. Um, the steady state infant dose was very low. We're looking at 0.0013 mg per kg per day with a mean relative infant dose of 0.357%. Concentrations of zoranolone in breast milk were below the level of quantification by four to six days after the last dose. So even if there's any concern while they're taking it, by four to six days after the last dose, it's, it's not detectable. Um, we don't have any data available on the exact impact of this tiny amount of zoranolone in the breastfed infant. We just don't know. Sedation would be a possibility. I think that would be the number one thing we would look out for. There's not necessarily any expert consensus on whether or not to stop breastfeeding while taking zoranolone. Although the bits of research I've been looking at has been leaning a little more positive. We know how cautious we are in this subject. We all, none of us want to come out and say, sure, go for it. It's all shared decision making. 
but it's not looking too bad. It's looking pretty good. Um, and in the clinical trials, it's very important to note that there was no breastfeeding during the clinical trials. So that is full disclosure right there. Now, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, which is a department of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, says because of the low amounts of zoranolone in milk, it would not be effective to cause it would not be expected to cause adverse effects in breastfed infants. If zoranolone is required by the mother, it is not a reason to discontinue breastfeeding. Until more data are available, zoranolone should be used with careful infant monitoring for excessive sedation during breastfeeding, especially with higher doses and in newborn or preterm infants. Again, from my preterm NICU days, I know that their metabolism is different. You really want to be careful with those little ones. Um, so we, and basically the bottom line is you just got to consider the developmental benefits versus risks. We know there's a big danger in not treating depression, both for the mother and the infant. We know that there's clear benefits with breastfeeding if you have a mom who's eager and willing to do so and able. We just have to do that shared decision-making model, which those of us as psychiatric providers are more than comfortable with. And there we it's go. It's a perfect segue. Perfect segue. So this is where we would usually dive into more shared decision-making. I don't know that we have to really hammer this too hard, not with this audience. This is what we do for a living, is working with patients and getting to know them and negotiating their care and giving them the information they need to own their health care and to make good decisions for themselves. So I don't know that we need to take a deep dive. Um, there have been some interesting questions that, that really talk about and maybe a good model for shared decision making conversations would be the substance use patient yeah. case where we are worried, especially with some of these new agents that touch the GABA receptor. And yeah. we do know with some of the glutamatergics, there are some opioid receptor interactions. How would you go about a shared decision-making conversation using some of these tenets in the substance, substance user? Well, and this is a very, very good question. My clinical practice is actually focused on pregnant and parenting women in the substance use treatment environment. So this is a world I'm very closely aligned with. And it wasn't noted earlier, but Zoranolone will be scheduled by the DEA. Zoranolone will be a scheduled drug. We were expecting that within 90 days of the August approval, which would mean August, September, September, October, October, November, any day now. We should be finding out. I have no idea or clue what the scheduling was. I did some research. I tried to find it. I didn't. I would assume it would probably be around like the benzos because it's, it's a GABA receptor modulator, but I don't know. So it will be scheduled. So we just really want to do that shared decision making with our patients. And if they do have a history of substance use disorder, and they're having postpartum depression, it's that risk benefit because this is a medication that can trigger some of those same behaviors. And so I am very, very upfront with all my patients when I'm treating them with anything that could come close to a controlled substance. I don't want to put your recovery at risk. I have other options. We can work together, share decision making, but I would just be very cognizant of that and just be aware that this medication might trigger those little neurons, unfortunately, in our folks with substance use disorder that respond in a certain way to sedating or euphoric medications. So I would just be cautious of that. That's great ideas, great ideas. Um, we've got about four minutes left. Double check my work. I think we've hit almost all these questions. Yeah, I was so looking, I don't we're think doing we shorted good. anybody. Let's close our cases out. So let me tell you what happened with Cyrus. So what we did was, again, use the PHQ-9 as our guide. We all practice measurement-based care whenever we possibly can. We engaged in some conversations, some shared decision-making with Cyrus, and we decided we were going to take him off his Lexapro and his Abilify and start that combination dextromethorphan-bupropion. 
So he did what we just talked about, started one tablet in the morning for three days, things were going well on day four, he doubled that dose, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And on day seven, we did a telehealth visit and he actually sent back a PHQ-9 that showed he was improving. His PHQ-9 had decreased from 21 to 13. And over the next several visits, he continued to improve. His energy and motivation improved. His vegetative symptoms were improving. He was starting to re-engage. He started to go out and play racquetball again and some of those things he had given up before. He started to get back to the gym and his weight was decreasing. He lost five pounds within the first six weeks of beginning the new treatment. At two months, his PHQ-9 had reduced to four. So we were definitely back near remission, which is exactly where he wanted to be. He tolerated the medication pretty well, just a few headaches, some mild nausea, particularly if he took the medicine on an empty stomach, but all of those were mitigated within a two week period. So Cyrus did pretty well. Well, let's talk about Veronica and what happened with Veronica. So, you know, we decided based on that EPDS score, she's probably had PPD. She had postpartum depression. Um, we really wanted to do an in-depth assessment at that point. She wasn't having mania or psychosis. Um, she was not actively thinking of harming herself and her baby. She had those kind of passive thoughts, but there was no active thoughts of either harming herself or baby. Um, we decided that she was not really looking suicidal or psychotic, but we really wanted to consider a treatment for PPD as soon as possible, since that early intervention is so important. We don't want this to linger. We don't want her to wait six to eight weeks for a medication to kick in. She was receptive to learning about the new treatment approaches for PPD, and she decided to begin that 14-day course of Zoranolone. When she started treatment, her depression symptoms started to respond within three days, which is what we see with Zoranolone. Depression was in remission by day eight, so she met that criteria for remission. She reported improvements across the board. She was bonding better with her baby. She had reduced anxiety. She had better quality of sleep, and she had reduced that alcohol consumption. She had cut back on that. She didn't feel like she needed it. The one drawback was that she could not breastfeed for the two weeks that she was taking Zoranolone, and although she was pumping in order to keep open the possibility of resuming after that 14-day course of treatment, she feared that her baby would reject efforts to resume breastfeeding after getting accustomed to bottle feeding. Those of us that work in this realm, this is where you bring in your lactation consultants. We can definitely get her through this process. And we really appreciate you coming and having breakfast with us today. So thanks so much. Thank Safe you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EUC 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sage Therapeutics and Biogen.